trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you've ever had that inkling that just maybe corporate media is feeding you a line that uh, may not align with reality, well, I'm here to affirm that that's, that's correct. I'm also here to apply an antidote, and I do that in part by, well, having conversations with uh, people like my friend Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, how are you today? Well, I'm good, and it's going to be an interesting week. Believe it or not, Ford is going to send me the F-150 Lightning, their electric version of the half-ton pickup. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to get my hands on it, and I'm going to do some very fair real-world testing of it and uh, relay the fulsome scurvy truth to anybody who wants to hear it. Maybe it's just because of our conversations, but uh, my enthusiasm for electric vehicles is, uh, I don't know, the needle isn't moving. <laughs> it's not there. No, nor is mine. You know, I, on an emotional level, I just don't like them because I consider them to be soulless appliances, one much like the other. But then there are some practical considerations. You know, The ones they're going to send me have a range of about 240 miles. That's with the base battery. And, uh, you know, I'm out in the sticks out in the country, so that's not a whole lot of range. And as I tell people every time I get the chance, uh, you know, recharging it, okay, well, I can't fast charge it at home. You know, they don't tell people this. You cannot fast charge an EV at home. So for me, that means having to go downtown, which is 30-something miles away at least, and park myself at one of those fast chargers and wait there while the thing recharges. So you can imagine what that would be like if you have to do that a couple of times a week, which I probably would, and how much time that involves. So that's just one aspect of that that I think is going to be interesting to people, and we'll have to see how it all goes. Well, maybe maybe we should jump in here. I know there are a couple other topics we'll touch on maybe in the second segment, mm-hmm. but you had uh, published uh, a piece about occasional use vehicles, and yeah. this, this sounds like a good place to segue right into that. What, what do we mean by occasional use? Well, that's my neologism. I just came up with that early this morning while I was drinking too much coffee uh, as a kind of mockery of uh, you know, electric vehicles to, to kind of come up with a new word for them. And uh, I think it's a legitimate word because the problem is we've got this big disparity between the generating capacity of the electrical grid and the load that will be placed on them, hypothetically, by all these electric vehicles that they want to put out there on the road. And unless there is a way found to massively increase the generating capacity of the grid, there's not going to be enough electricity. And if you haven't got enough electricity, you can't drive your electric car. So it winds up becoming an occasional use vehicle rather than an electric vehicle. Interesting. You know, I, this makes me wonder, huh? So in the event of an emergency, let's say the National Guard is, is called out, are they going to show up in electric vehicles, you know, with a with a mm-hmm. nice green sure. footprint? <laughs> Sure. And, you know, and another thing, too, that's interesting about it is they tell us that we have to transition to electric vehicles because the climate is changing and the use of hydrocarbon fuels is resulting in the emission of carbon dioxide and it's causing the problem. Well, more than half of the grid, uh, electrical generating capacity in this country, is (laughs) created by burning, guess what, hydrocarbon fuel, right? So... If your purpose is to reduce the emissions of carbon dioxide, you're going to have to get rid of all of that uh, hydrocarbon fuel burning generating capacity, which will cut the grid in half unless it's replaced somehow. Well, what are they going to replace it with? Solar panels? Wind farms? 
you know, the one thing that, that, that actually would work would be nuclear generating capacity or um, uh, turbines, right, uh, hydro right. turbines at, at, at rivers. But they're not building any of those. Literally, not one is being built. So where is the power going to come from? You know, I think it's a really important question that people ought to ask. Well, and, and maybe this is just the culmination of what I saw happen over the last three years with, um, you know, people at every level of government trying to grab as much power as they possibly could. If I wanted to lock down my control of a population, be it rural or urban, um, making sure they were all in vehicles that depended upon the electrical grid and then having control of that electrical grid would seem like a pretty good way to control their movements. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Particularly when you think about it, that uh, electricity is not storable in the way that uh, liquid hydrocarbon fuels are. You know, you can keep um, a few five-gallon jugs of gas or diesel on hand, and you've got it in a pinch. You know, if you really needed to go somewhere, you can always put the, 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 the fuel that you stored uh, into your engine to vehicle. But if you have an electric vehicle and the, uh, the battery is down, where are you going to get the electricity if it's been turned off? Uh, you know, maybe you have a gas-powered generator that you can crank up and use that to recharge it. But absent that, you're not going anywhere. You've got a two-ton brick in your garage. Yeah. Well, and it's, uh, well, we, we still have choices for the moment, but it, but it's pretty clear the direction mm-hmm. that, that we're going. And, uh, you know, combine this with the idea that uh, we're, we're all approaching that moment of choice where we have to either accept a digital identity that will go with the digital centrally controlled currency or not. And, and I, yeah. I, I actually saw somebody refer to this as, hey, folks, that's a digital prison that you're being invited to step into. And most people are probably going to do it for the sake of convenience. Yeah, well, I hope to God they don't. Uh, you know, that's a hard line for me for just the reason that you uh, said. Uh, if that comes to pass, if there's uh, compliance with that, mass compliance, it's game over. They own us. And uh, there's nothing that we'll be able to do other than go live in the woods because it will be impossible to work, to buy things. Uh, to function in, in any semblance of uh, a traditional manner that we're used to without bending knee to that. And if you bend knee to that, that will be used to force you, to coerce you, to do everything that they tell you to. Because the minute that you don't, they simply just shut off your ability to, to buy and sell. Yep. When your identity becomes a government-granted privilege, it's very easy to become an unperson in the Orwellian sense. So I hope people realize that, you know, it may be good that we had to go through the past three years, um, which woke a lot of people up to the malevolence of the people behind us, that uh, they're not gentle creatures looking out for our safety and well-being, that they're very pernicious creatures, and we cannot abide this, and it must be stopped. So talk to me about, you know, speaking of what we went through over the last three years, you were mentioning to me before we went on air about um, a, a restaurant or establishment owner yep. who, who actually bucked the trend of everybody, lock it down and don't uh, don't serve customers. And apparently now that uh, things have kind of gone back to normal, that didn't stop the state from coming after this guy. What's the story there? No. Yeah. You know, there are a couple of those uh, bright, shining examples at the uh, very darkest uh, height of the uh, the, the sickness psychosis that we've all lived through. A few restaurants, there was a gym, I think, in Philadelphia that refused to close their doors, refused to try to mask people who went through the doors when the, the lockdowns were lifted. One of those was a place called Gourmelt, which is in uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia. It's not that far from where I am. And uh, the owner of that place continued to keep his, his doors open and refused to require people who went in there to eat to put on the mask. And of course, the uh, the state of Virginia went after him, and they took away first his uh, his health license, 
and then his ABC license. Well, the health license thing eventually went away. The ABC thing didn't, and uh, a court issued an order a couple of weeks ago uh, uh, suspending his license to serve people, and uh, the state sent a whole crew of hut, hut, hut armed government workers to shut him down. Uh, and it has nothing to do with whether he had his ABC license because he had it and it was legitimate. There was no issue with his serving of beverages per se. It was simply a punitive measure to let him know who's boss and to punish him for daring to stand up to former Governor Ralph Ralph Kuhnman Northam's uh, COVID decrees. Wow. You know, just when I think that, uh, you know, statists couldn't get any more petty, along comes a story mm-hmm. like this and I have to raise the bar again. Sure. And, you know, bear in mind, too, all of the businesses, and you know, this is personal for me because I have friends who've been affected by this, who lost their businesses as a result of things that we all know now were totally unnecessary, totally unjustified, uh, and, and, and were criminally abusive. What compensation do they have for what happened to them, to their businesses, to their families, to their financial well-being? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. Uh, they're just supposed to hit it and walk on down the road. Well, and I think I've told you here in Idaho, we still have a mom who was arrested in April of 2020 for taking her kids to the park after they had taped it off with crime scene tape. Mm -hmm. And because she didn't leave when a police officer told her to, and she said, what are you going to do, arrest me? And that's exactly what Mm -hmm. he did. The state is still pressing charges. They they have, uh, they've moved her trial. I don't know how many times now, at least three different times. It's cost her $30,000 out of her own pocket. But uh, the, the, the process is the punishment, and, and they won't let mm-hmm. it go. To me, that's the scariest part. Somebody in the state is saying, no, don't let this go. We gotta, we've got to pursue this mom sure. for trespassing. Sure. It's really interesting to me in that you know, these same people uh, on the left side of the aisle are constantly saying that it's necessary to pay reparations to the people whose great-great-great-grandfather may have been a slave, uh, and the reparations are going to be paid for by uh, people whose ancestors may not have even lived in the United States at the time, let alone had any slaves. Somehow that's a, a morally acceptable thing. But what about reparations for people who are actually damaged right now, living people, um, and who were damaged by other actually living people, like Dr. Fauci, for example, yes, uh, or Governor Northam, and all these other health bureaucrats, politicians, and so on, who did these awful things to so many millions of us, and uh, I think should be held responsible and made to pay uh, in many ways. And mon- monetary is only one way. Okay, an excellent point. We're going to take a very quick break. We're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. You can check out the link that I provide in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Go to Eric's website. You'll find lots of great reading material, a lot of great comments, by the way, at the end of those articles. And we'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. Eric, there is so much to talk about. I feel like I'm just, I'm, I'm running from one subject to the next to the next. Um, I wanted to get you your reaction. The, the Twitter files dropped, or at least yeah. started to drop on, on Friday. And it's telling, first of all, that none of the corporate media sources really seem to have much to say about it over the weekend. No headlines or anything. Yeah. Now the damage control is starting. Well, it was a, it was another one of those things where they promised it would uh, it would deliver, and it was just a, a smoking gun that was nothing. You know, uh, what was your reaction to what was revealed when uh, when Elon Musk released those files and uh, Matt Taibbi, you know, ran with it? 
Well, I wasn't surprised. You know, I think anybody who's been following any of this could intuit that this was going to be the revelation. We all know what's been going on. And the irony of it, of course, uh, is that the very same people who were denying that it was going on uh, were the ones behind it. And who were the ones who were constantly hurling the same kinds of allegations at people who did no such thing. Uh, you know, again, I'm not defending the orange man per se, but remember when they were telling us that the, uh, the orange man was Putin's puppet, and there was, uh, you know, all, all of this, this supposed evidence of that, none of which was ever forthcoming, none of which was ever established. Meanwhile, these people are, are actively manipulating uh, the media in order to further their political agenda, and when they're caught red-handed, they act as though it's no big deal. Wow. Yeah, it, it, I think Ron Paul nailed it when he said the best part that's come out of this revelation here, despite whatever spin the media is throwing at it, is we can clearly see who the totalitarians are among us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's always of a piece with this cognitive dif- dissonance that you see manifested by the left. Uh, you know, we're in the, they're guilty of exactly the things that they accuse other people of doing. Have you noticed that? Oh, yeah. It's cl- isn't that classic uh, leftist uh, methodology, though? Accuse your opponent of exactly what you're doing, you know, to try to deflect criticism? Yep. And they do it without shame, without compunction. They're not embarrassed about it, and they just continue to get away with it that's one of the problems with our side you know our side has a conscience and shame and when people get caught doing something even if it was inadvertent they tend to say oh gosh i'm sorry i shouldn't have done that uh go should no more don't do it again um whereas the other side of the aisle they don't care because what they care about is power yep you know they'll just continue to go on their merry way continue to do the same thing over and over again and until people on our side of the aisle understand that about them, we're not going to be effective in, in thwarting them. Caitlin Johnstone actually made an observation yesterday on Twitter that, that rang very true. And that was, she says, look, you're never going to have a rational conversation with people who are defenders of that corporate media slant or the left wing slant that, uh, you know, this this had to be done. Because in their minds, this is a quasi-religious um, fervor that they're in, that we had to do what we had to do because Donald Trump was just that evil. In other words, anything exactly. is justified. Yeah, well, there is no media to speak of any lo- anymore in this country other than the handful of independent journalists who are not part of the corporate institutional media, um, which has become nothing more than the PR uh, arm of corporations and big government that reads from a teleprompter and does exactly what they're told to do. They don't investigate anything. They don't look into anything. They don't ask probing questions. They just repeat talking points. And no wonder the public confidence in the media has fallen to uh, probably single digits if it's even a whole number anymore. Scary stuff. But again, it just illustrates something I think you and I have, have advocated for a long time, and that is got to think for yourself. You, you have to be willing to, to disbelieve what others are telling you until you've had a chance to really think it through and verify it for yourself. Yeah, there's a silver lining to every single dark cloud, and uh, that is exactly one of them, I think. Uh, You know, you and I grew up at a time when there were three networks, and we just uh, assumed implicitly that people like uh, Walter Cronkite and Rather, all those guys were trustworthy, you know, that they were telling us what the news was. And even though there was bias in those days, there still was journalism, and by and large, they would report things and look into things. There was a leftward bias even then, but it wasn't terrible. Now it is. Now it's out of hand. It's beyond that. Um, but people are aware of it, and they're not paying any attention anymore. You know, they've pulled back the curtain. They see Oz fiddling with the controls, and they understand that the whole thing is smoke and mirrors and a show. Yep. I want to shift gears here and talk about uh, an article you, you wrote recently, Going for a Swim, and, and some interesting news <laughs> yeah. about the used car market. What's going on there? 
Yeah, well, you know, uh, one of the things about the uh, uh, the last three years was that we had this unprecedented phenomenon of used cars appreciating in value. You know, people who had bought a car, say, in 2018, found that their car come 2020 was actually worth more than what they paid for it because of this combination of factors of uh, production lines for new cars having been shut down because of the Rona, uh, the chip shortage, and all of that. So they, they were looking like, wow, I'm making a lot of money on my car. I could you know, sell it back to the dealer, and many people did. Uh, and uh, it was really good news for those people. Of course, it was terrible news for you if you didn't have a car and needed one, whether to buy used or new, because you were going to pay through the nose for that. Well, that's all reversing predictably uh, because the car manufacturers are building new cars again. The chip shortage is easing. And fundamentally, there is a limit to what people can pay. And I think it's going to accelerate and ramp up. And I think within the next few months or a year at most, you're going to be able to get a really good deal on both a new car and a used car. And the article gets into some of the data points on that. That's exciting because, uh, I, unfortunately, a year ago, I found myself in a position of needing not one but two used cars. Yeah. And, oh, holy cow, that was a painful experience. But, you know, we, we were kind of between a rock and a hard place. Sure, sure. A lot of people were. But, uh, you know, it'll be a good thing come, going forward for people, particularly, I think, with regard to the used market, which will settle down. And it will give people the opportunity to save some money for once, uh, you know, rather than going into debt again for a new car that many people just can't afford anymore. Agreed. And, and as, far as, as far as new cars, um, interest rates, you know, I, I think uh, they're, they're going to have kind of a, a – I think they're going to discourage people from, from wanting to, to well, go they into already that debt. They already have, no question about it, uh, and particularly with regard to used cars. Uh, it's common now to be paying double-digit interest on a used car loan, even for people with pretty good credit. That's not sustainable. You know, it, it makes the cost of the used car, which previously might have been less than buying the new car because the new car costs more, uh, not that, because you end up paying more because of the interest, which is maybe twice or even three times what you would have paid on a new car loan. So it just becomes that much more difficult. On the other hand, if you have cash, uh, you will be in a good position in the months and coming years, I think, because you'll be able to just buy a vehicle outright for a whole lot less than what people are financing them for today. Wow. Well, the silver linings are there. You may have to look. They are. But uh, but if you know what to look for, they're, they're definitely there. Talk to me about uh, your take on, uh, is it Georgia that's having the runoff? Uh, is, is it today or is it tomorrow? Uh, I think it's tomorrow, but I'm not certain. I think it was the first week of December at any rate, and that's where we are. Uh, I'm not at all sanguine about Herschel Walker. Uh, he hasn't been a great candidate uh, for one thing. But for the other thing, uh, the same problem that beset the, uh, the midterms besets the election in Georgia. We have no idea whether uh, votes will be vetted before they're counted, and it could turn out to be another one of these drawn-out affairs where they keep counting votes for days and days and, uh, until they get the right result, which, of course, will be that <laughs> Walker loses. But you never know. There might be more scrutiny this time. Uh, maybe enough people came out uh, to offset any, any cheating shenanigans that might have occurred. Then again, when I look at what happened in, in Arizona, I'm really not too positive uh, about what's going to happen in Georgia tomorrow. Yeah, you have to wonder. Somebody had pointed out on Twitter, if, if Donald Trump had been in charge of the 2020 election, you know, would 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 people uh, would the press have have the same kind of circumspect attitude they have towards, for instance, Katie Hobbs in in mm-hmm. Arizona? And my understanding mm-hmm. is Arizona county officials are being told you will certify these results or you will be charged with a felony. Wow, that's yeah, absolutely coercive. arrested and arrested and put in jail. 
But other than that, you know, we've got honest government and everything is very transparent and above the board. So, you know, no worries. Yeah, you know, that was a national level story, in my opinion. The fact that Katie Hobbs, the uh, supposed governor-elect of the state, happened to be the state official in charge of supervising her very own election. And, you know, the national media uh, was not up in arms about that. Whereas you can just imagine what would have been the case if it had been the reverse, let's say. Uh, you know, if the Trump-approved candidate in the state had been in a supervisory capacity over the elections, they would have said, oh, my gosh, it's unfair. Oh, the humanity. It would have been endless. Probably would but have blamed the Russians. Because, <laughs> yeah, of course they would have. You know, people see this, I think, and they're getting sick of it. Thank God. Amen. Eric, great to talk with you. Let's catch up again next week. Sounds good, Brian. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a shout out here to GarageDoorProServices.com and my friend Seth Schultes. He's the owner of Garage Door Pros. This is a local company to Southern Utah, St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona. This is where they install, service, and repair garage doors. And if you're in need of any of those things, these are the guys I would recommend you call. They do commercial service as well as residential. Reach out to them at 435-525-2773 and let Garage Door Pro Services take care of you. Well, let's take a moment here to talk <clears throat> just a little bit about the the anti-human policies that are being foisted on the world. There was there was a really attention-grabbing headline on Lou Rockwell today, an article by Gary Barnett. Depopulation and democide at every turn. This is the planned future you have voluntarily accepted. Now, I get it. That's whoa, those are strong words, man. That's that's people are gonna say, you know, this this is where conspiracy theories uh, seem to come from. This is uh this is conspiracy realism. And if you have followed the World Economic Forum, if you've followed the Great Reset, if you've even listened to some of the things that even, you know, benign figures like Bill Gates have been talking about, there has been consensus for a long time among the very elite, the Davos crowd, that there are just too many people on this planet, there just aren't enough resources, so we've got to get a lot of the population off the earth. Now, there's where it gets tricky, right? Oh, well, how do we do that? I mean, how do we get, get down to a sustainable population of 500 million human beings and no more, especially when there's over 8 billion people on the earth right now? So I'm going to start with a quote from Rudolf Rummel. R.J. Rummel, you may recognize, he's the uh, guy who coined the phrase democide, meaning death by government. He says, during the 20th century, 170 million men, women, and children have been shot, beaten, tortured, knifed, burned, starved, frozen, crushed, or worked to death, buried alive, drowned, hung, bobbed, or bombed, rather, or killed in any other of the myriad ways governments have inflicted death on unarmed, helpless citizens and foreigners. 170 million, you understand, that's, that's not counting soldiers in war. That's, this is governments systematically committing genocide. During the 20th century, you know, you may think those are rookie numbers, but that's that's a lot of people. This is why government cannot be allowed to have a monopoly on force. If you wonder why, why are people like you so so adamant about the right to keep and bear arms because of this? As long as you have arms, 
available to you, you have the means of resisting. Well, it's futile. They have tanks and they have F-15s. It doesn't matter. Nobody can make you do what they want you to do without coming to you in person and forcing you to do it. And if they know that they stand the risk of catching a bullet for doing so, that's powerful incentive to reconsider. Nonetheless, I want to I want to go back to where does this anti-human this there's too many people thinking come from? And maybe you have heard of uh, of Thomas Malthus or Malthusian thinking. Well, the earth is there's too many people and it just can't sustain them. Well, there's a remarkable article on the American Institute for Economic Research website from Anthony Davies from the Words and Numbers podcast. And it's the Malthusian contradiction. I thought this was just top-notch. This is why I'm sharing it with you. He says, last month, something old became new again. What's new is that the world population crossed the 8 billion mark for the first time. What's old is that for more than two centuries, experts have been warning we're headed for calamity because our population is unsustainable. Now, when in 1798, the world population crossed the 1 billion mark, economist Thomas Malthus warned that the combination of linear growth in food production and exponential growth in population put us on a path to inevitable famine. Malthus's warnings were was under well Malthus's warning was understandable. It took humans around 250,000 years to reach a population of one half billion, and only another 200 to add a second half billion. That's like a car taking four seconds to go from zero to 60, and then three thousandths of a second to go from 60 to 120. Malthus was quite reasonable in his prediction that the world population was headed for an ugly crash. Now the reality turned out to be worse than Malthus predicted. It took 200 years for the world population to double to the 1 billion of Malthus's time. It took just 120 years for it to double again to 2 billion in 1927. It took 47 years to double again to 4 billion in 1974. And Malthus today would have regarded today's 8 billion as, at best, impossible and, at worst, apocalyptic. Actual world population growth has been far worse than Malthus could have imagined. But the reality is also better than Malthus imagined. Not only did food production grow geometrically, it grew even faster than the population. So that the world can feed today's 8 billion far more easily than it could Malthus's 1 billion. Yet for two centuries, experts have repeated Malthus's error by predicting the end of the world every time the population approaches another round number. Now, Anthony Davies points out here, the Malthusian's errors lay not in, in, in not understanding resources. He says, resources experts warn are limited, but that's not entirely correct. Specific resources are limited. There is only so much oil. There's only so much land. There's only so much fresh water. But resources in general are not limited. Or rather, they're limited only by human ingenuity. Millennia ago, the work a person could do was limited by his stamina and the strength of his muscles. Then some enterprising humans domesticated the horse and ox, and one person leading a team of animals could do the work of several people. Then humans invented steam power, and one person could do the work of several teams of animals. Then humans invented the internal combustion and electric engines, and work capacity multiplied again. With computers and machines, a single farmer today can feed around 10 times the number of people as a single farmer in 1940. And human ingenuity has not just made humans more productive, it's made the land more productive too. In 1960, worldwide, a hectare of land produced around 1.3 tons of cereals per year. Today, a hectare of land produces more than four tons. 
in the 1400s. The world derived half of its energy from work animals and the other half from burning wood. Then humans discovered how to mine and transport large quantities of coal, an energy source with a 50% higher energy density than wood. By the early 1900s, more than half of the world's energy came from coal. Then humans discovered how to drill for oil, a substance with an 80% higher energy density than coal. By the close of the 20th century, oil had replaced coal as the primary energy source. Humans learned how to build pipelines and distribute natural gas, a substance with 25% higher energy density than oil. Today, natural gas and oil together provide half of our energy needs. Within the next century, humans will learn how to harness nuclear fusion, and that will make energy virtually limitless and almost free. Now, he says Malthus was wrong because he believed that our ability to feed ourselves depended on natural resources. And natural resources do matter, but ultimately they aren't what feed us. Human ingenuity is what feeds us. Earth provides materials, but it's human ingenuity that turns those materials into valuable resources. And so long as there's human ingenuity, there will always be resources. So he says, this brings us to what we might call the Malthusian contradiction. Only a small minority of humans have the intelligence, skill, drive, and luck to invent and discover new resources. To ensure that we have enough of these rare humans to keep invention and discovery going, we need more humans. If only one in a thousand of us is a genius and only one in a hundred of those has the outsized drive to search for new discoveries or create new inventions, or only one in ten of those has the luck that so often plays a role in discovery, then we need a population of one million to expect to get just a single Thomas Edison or George Washington Carver or Steve Jobs. And what if we needed thousands or tens of thousands of Edisons? Well, we need a population into the billions. Now, he says another thing that the Malthusians fail to appreciate, this is both the old and the modern Malthusians, is that complex systems are self-correcting. As the number of people grows, not only do we have more of those rare ingenious humans, but the increased demand for specific resources drives prices of those resources up, and elevated prices summon armies of people to seek out, establish, finance, and assist those geniuses. So behind every Jeff Bezos are thousands of entrepreneurs, investors, consumers, and workers putting their own particular talents and treasures to work also. And the result is that expon exponential population growth necessarily gives rise to exponential resource, resource growth. Kind of an interesting way to look at things. There's more to this article. I'll include it in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, but listen to this final paragraph. Anthony Davies says, Malthusians err in thinking that resources are limited and that the key to saving humanity is to limit our consumption of those resources by limiting our numbers. But he says it, the truth is that it's the humans who create resources in the first place. When Malthusians point to explosive population growth, they think they're identifying a problem. They're actually identifying the solution. Isn't that kind of an interesting twist? And I, it, to me, it rings true. I think he's absolutely right. The people who will solve problems, you know, not everybody, this is, this is a terrible thing to acknowledge, but not everybody is a genius. But the more people there are, the greater the odds that uh, you will have geniuses among them. And somebody's got the answers. Personally, I believe God puts such individuals among us to help us find those answers. But, you know, that's a whole other aspect that we haven't explored here. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I'd like to thank my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org and LifesavingFood.com. I have links to their websites in my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. I would encourage you, take a look. If you're inclined, just, you know, sneak a peek, see if there's something that uh, they have to offer in way of, you know, a wonderful world-class education or perhaps some life-saving food and food storage and emergency preparedness stuff. I think you could find a lot to, uh, to help shore up your position in life, not just for bad times, but for good times as well. All right. I know there's been a lot of talk and, uh, you know, we've covered a lot on the, the Twitter files, but I, I came across this article from uh, Ron Paul. It's a commentary that is just too good not to share. Ron Paul talks about how the Twitter papers reveal the totalitarians around us. And this is the silver lining to what we're now learning about what uh, the executives at Twitter were doing to suppress truthful information and points of view that uh, offered a counter to the Democratic National Committee's, you know, preferred uh, narrative. Ron Paul says, I admit to being skeptical of Elon Musk as a free speech hero. He's moved from one U.S. government-subsidized business to another on his path to becoming the world's richest person. But, he says, there's no denying that his release of the Twitter papers this past weekend, which blew the lid off government manipulation of social media, has been a huge victory for those of us who value the First Amendment. The release, in coordination with truly independent journalist Matt Taibbi, demonstrated indisputably how politicians and representatives of official Washington pressed the teams that were then in charge of censorship at Twitter to remove tweets and even ban accounts that were guilty of nothing beyond posting something the power brokers did not want the general public to read. And he says, let's not forget, many of those demanding Twitter censorship were U.S. government officials who had taken an oath to the U.S. Constitution and its First Amendment. Ron Paul says it's important to understand that both U.S. political parties were involved in pushing Twitter to censor information they didn't like. There's plenty of corruption to go around. However, as the Twitter papers demonstrated, vastly more tweets were censored at the demand of Democratic Party politicians simply because Twitter employees on the censorship team were overwhelmingly Democratic Party supporters. Perhaps the most damning piece of evidence released in this first installment of the Twitter papers was a series of tweets from the Biden 2020 campaign to its contact inside Twitter asking that the social media censor them. An internal Twitter document shows that the censor team handled these, in quotes, meaning censored them. Elon Musk himself openly stated before the release that prior to his taking control of the company and engaging in mass firing, Twitter had been manipulating elections. So all those years we heard lies from the Washington elites that it was Russia interfering in our elections, when after all it was Twitter. Of course, that raises the question about other large social media companies like Facebook. Will Mark Zuckerberg come clean about his own company's election interference? Will anyone have the courage to demand that he do so? How did they get away with all this? Well, another truly independent journalist, Glenn Greenwald, pointed out on the Tucker Carlson show the night the Twitter papers were released, while it was once controversial for the CIA to attempt to manipulate what Americans consume in the mainstream media, nowadays these former these outlets rather openly hire former US intelligence leaders and officers as news analysts. CNN, MSNBC, Fox, and the rest of them all bring on former members of the intelligence services to tell Americans what to think. Big tech censorship is a critical tool of the national security state, Greenwald told Tucker. 
Whenever anyone tries to do anything about it, these former people from the CIA and the Pentagon and the rest jump up and say, we cannot allow you to restore free speech. That's right. That does sound a lot like what we're hearing, isn't it? Ron Paul says, this is a corruption scandal so massive that it's almost guaranteed to never be properly investigated. Government itself is among the most guilty. And we know government commissions are really about covering up rather than uncovering the crimes committed. But the truth is powerful. Some 58 years after the Warren report whitewashed the assassination of President Kennedy, polls show that few Americans believe the official narrative. Ron Paul says truth is powerful and we must always seek it. No amount of lies can withstand the disinfectant of truth. And he says thanks to Elon Musk for his courage and we, <clears throat> we encourage him to continue. I'm just happy that we can see that silver lining. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm grateful that, that it's revealing what, what I think most of us have suspected, or many of us have suspected. I don't know. I can't speak for most. But isn't it interesting to, to see the, the outrage and the horror on the part of, you know, the, the political left as well as those within, you know, the Twitter hierarchy. Oh, free speech. This is such a dangerous thing. They really fear freedom. Because freedom means they can't control you. They can't control me. And I hope it doesn't sound too petty to say this, but I intend to live my life in such a way that it reminds them every breath I take without their permission is just another reminder that they don't control me. They can't control me. Do you want to have a test of wills? Hey, I've been all in for a long time. Let's, let's have that test. All right, two other quick articles I want to re- refer to you to. Uh, Victor Davis Hansen, great article on uh, how corrupt is a corrupt media and why should we believe anything they say. I've been making the case, and I know I'm beating this dead horse, but um, the less corporate media you consume, the happier you're going to be, and, and chances are the better informed you're going to be, assuming that if there's something you really want to know, you're willing to go and dig and find that information and research it yourself. You can, you can learn to think like an expert. You can actually become an expert. It just depends on how badly you want to understand something. The second thing is there's an article here that uh, this one caught my eye. It's a New York woman who is facing uh, the possibility of years in prison because she injured nine BLM protesters back in 2020 when they surrounded her car and tried to break the windows and tried to pull her and her daughter out of the car. And she's on trial. She's actually been offered, I think she was offered a a plea bargain, saying, well, plead guilty to, I think it was a uh, Class D felony vehicular assault charge that would carry a seven-year prison sentence. Twice she's been offered this plea deal. Twice she has turned it down. And I think rightly so. She did nothing wrong. In December of 2020, Kathleen Casillo found herself stopped at the intersection of 39th Street and 3rd Avenue around 4 o'clock in the afternoon when she and her 29-year-old daughter were immediately surrounded and attacked by a howling mob of BLM, mostly peaceful, protesters. They jumped on her car. They tried to smash out the windows. They tried to open the door. The whole time, you know, they were, they were screaming, white privilege, bitch, at the women as, as all of this occurred. Trying to drag them out of their vehicles and fearing for her life, she floored the gas and sped off, injuring nine protesters, one of them seriously, in the process. Oh, I would, I would love to be on her jury. Because the jury's trying to determine, is this the actions of a reasonable person? 
I would say a person who is surrounded by screaming protesters trying to break your windows and drag you from the car to beat you into a cripple. Yeah, that's self-defense. To me, it seems as clear-cut as could be, but here she is being prosecuted. Isn't that something? And I, look, I, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to incite, yeah, it's a good thing. You know, let's cheer when we see these protesters get run over. But let's remember who is setting in motion the events that are, that are putting lives at risk. When you're blocking traffic, particularly when you're harassing or threatening motorists, and I noticed, you know, BLM up to their tap tactics, and Antifa came along for the ride, and now you've got armed people standing there pointing guns at people in their cars. I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, they put themselves into that situation where they are posing an imminent, unavoidable threat to the people in those vehicles. And so somebody locking in four-wheel drive and putting their foot on the gas... In some, in some instances, I think that is probably the right thing to do. Now, does that, does that mean it's a, it's a good thing? Is it worth celebrating? No, I imagine it's probably a pretty heavy, you know, weight to carry on your conscience, especially if someone is killed, you know, in the process. But the thing to remember is who started that motion of events? Who is it who put those series of events in, into action? It was the protesters. So they don't get sympathy. I mean, some of us are old enough to remember the 1992 L.A. riots, and, and it's pretty hard to forget the, the footage of Reginald Denny being dragged out of his truck and nearly beaten to death right there on live television. I know for myself, that was kind of a gut-check moment where it was like, Phew. and I made the decision then, I'm, that's not going to be me. Now, of course, I believe the best, you know, the best tactic is avoidance, if you are aware of protests, don't go near them. If you, if you have any inkling that there's trouble or mobs forming, it's best to be somewhere else. But if you find yourself taken by surprise and you have no other choice in particular, if you have family members in the car or children that you're trying to protect, I think it should be very dangerous for someone to be a protester who's threatening harm and, you know, pounding on your car and breaking out your windows. Again, I have to point to who's the person who set that attack in motion. And by doing so, they forfeit their right to life or bodily safety. Sorry, but that's the way it is. This is The Brian Hyde Show.